Well, good morning. If you're here in the building, or whether you're watching from home, or whether you're watching this on, uh, on repeat, or perhaps not repeat, but you're watching it at a later date, should we say. But you may want to watch it on repeat. Um, Beth, can we have the first slide up, please? This is the second, of, uh, second preach in the series on the indispensable Holy Spirit. Uh, Daryl did the introduction last week, and it's my job to follow that one up. And what I want to look at this week is who is the Holy Spirit, who is he, and what does he do? I'm going to look at his role in our salvation, and I'm going to look at what the implications are for that in our lives as we go on as Christians. I tried to think of a snappy title to cover that all, but here's the snappy title I came up with. There you go. <laughs> That's as good as the creativity gets this morning. The Indispensable Holy Spirit, part two. There's going to be quite a bit, and... Um, I should say I'm not going to apologize for the number of PowerPoint slides this morning because they're largely Scripture. Not all, but mostly Scripture. So there's quite a lot there, but you cannot get enough of the Word of God to establish what good theology is and our understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and indeed about anything in our Christian walk. So there will be a lot of Scriptures there. Um, in any case, it actually means for those watching at home that when the Scriptures come up, I shrink to the bottom corner of the screen. And for me to shrink is probably not a bad thing under any circumstances. Um, <laughs> there we are. So, who is the Holy Spirit? The indispensable Holy Spirit. What does the Bible say? Well, it says that he is God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. He's part of the Godhead, what we would often refer to as the Trinity. Now, if you look in the Bible, you will nowhere find a reference to the word Trinity. It does not exist in the Scriptures. But there are enough hints and clues about what the nature of God is as you read right the way through. The Bible wasn't written as a book of systematic theology. It was written in all sorts of different ways, as history books and um, prophetic teaching and accounts of the life of Jesus and so on. But as you read through it all, you build up a picture of who God says he is. Now, the early church fathers tried to come up with some statements of faith and belief to try and summarize what we understand by Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Christian life. And those creeds, some of them will be familiar to you. So when I was growing up as a lad in the Anglican church, every Sunday, at least once, if not twice, I would read out the Apostles' Creed, which most of you know, I'm sure. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ. And so it goes on, and it talks about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the nature of the church, the return of Jesus, and so many other things. There's another creed, which is called the Nicene Creed. But I want to quote one for you this morning, or a bit of one, which is called the Athanasian Creed. And it's named after a guy called Athanasius, and it goes, I think, to about the 3rd century AD. It's a very long piece of work, and for that reason, I'm not going to read you loads of it. I'm just going to read you some of it. Um, if you want to read it, please, please, please do. It's good stuff, but it's quite long and quite repetitive. This is how it starts, the Athanasian Creed. We worship one God in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, 
The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So too there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Now I hope you get the drift. That's about a quarter to a third of the Athanasian Creed. And it goes on in very much the same vein. But it's worth reading because it was the early church saying, this is what we believe about God. This is what we believe about God the Father. This is what we believe about God the Son. This is what we believe about God the Holy Spirit. If you do read it, by the way, there is the words at the beginning and the end. The Catholic word comes in there, which is a small c, which means broad or wide. It doesn't mean Roman Catholic. So when you read it, don't think, oh, this is Roman Catholic. It's not. It's good stuff, but it's very lengthy. Um, but it's really powerful. Uh, Beth, if we could have the next slide up, please. There's a diagram which is called the Shield of the Trinity. And you can find various versions of this online. You can find some in Latin if you particularly want it, as well as English versions and slightly different diagrams. But I hope that that helps you to see a little bit about what we believe about the Holy Spirit as well as the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is God. He is part of the Godhead. He is a person. The Trinity is a difficult concept to understand, and I'm certainly not going to try and unpick that in a few minutes this morning. Uh, some people have tried in various different ways to describe the nature of the Trinity. Some people think of, for example, the triple point of water at roughly zero degrees Celsius, where water vapor and ice and water coexist. But whatever we try to do in terms of describing the Trinity is an impossible task. Because it's like trying to get our heads around the thing that actually created our heads in the first place. How can the created being ever fully and completely understand God who created us? It's an impossible task, and yet we get glimpses of who God is through the way he reveals himself in Scripture. I want to go back to Genesis chapter 1, but it doesn't take very long before the Holy Spirit makes an appearance. Genesis 1 and verses 1 and 2 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Right there, verse 2 of the very first book in the Bible, the Holy Spirit was there hovering over the waters. The Holy Spirit was part of the creation process. Now you'll know from John as well that that's the other book, book of the Bible that starts with the words in the beginning, and it talks about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and so on. Jesus was there at the beginning. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were all involved in the creation. The God who exists outside of time and space made time and space. And they were there before time began. In fact, there are three references, I haven't got these on a slide, that talk about before the foundation of the world. Before anything existed, time space, any matter, anything at all, before the foundation of the world, God existed. He created it all. The references are John 17, 24, Ephesians 1, 4, and 1 Peter 1, 20. It's absolutely clear that God, the Holy Spirit, was part of the creation process as he is part of the Godhead, the Trinity. Let's look a little deeper. Um, Beth, could we have that next slide, please, which is the verses I just read to you. And you'll see there, I've underlined the word spirit. The spirit of God was hovering over the waters. 
And the word spirit right through the Old Testament in Hebrew is the word ruach, which is the word for wind. Right from the very first days, what is written in Scripture as spirit is actually wind. You could read that. And the wind of God was hovering over the waters. The wind of God was hovering, breathing over the waters. So it's no surprise when we get to John chapter 3, and Jesus begins to have a conversation with Nicodemus. You'll know that very well. You'll see there it says, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. That word Spirit, again there, this time as you'll see at the bottom, is pneuma, from which we get pneumatic and things like that. The Greek word pneuma means wind. So no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the wind, born of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at me saying, says Jesus, you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the wind. Well, it's translated spirit there. The reason is because it wouldn't make much sense to translate it the same way each time. But the people hearing that, and Nicodemus hearing it, would have known as he heard it, when Jesus is saying it's like the wind, it comes, you don't know where it comes from or where it's going, so it is with the spirit. The word spirit being wind, it was very clear. This is what Jesus was trying to say about the nature of the Holy Spirit. That wind of God who brooded over creation in Genesis 1 is the same spirit that Jesus says we need to have the wind of God that we could be born again. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of the spirit. In preparation for today's message, I read through John's gospel. It's 21 chapters, as many of you all know, and we tend to read things section by section, I know, but I decided it would be a good thing to do, partly because there's so much in John's Gospel about the Spirit, and Daryl quoted several chapters last week, chapters 14, 15, 16 in particular. But I thought I will read it all through in one sitting, if I could. Actually, it was two sittings. It wasn't one sitting. But it only took about, what, two, two and a half hours, something like that, to read John's Gospel. But by doing it in that way, I was reading it consciously thinking, I know that the word Spirit means wind. What is this book saying to me now? What was John trying to get across when he wrote that book? knowing that the word means the wind of God. And I'd recommend you to do that. Read through John's Gospel. It'll be a real blessing for you to do that. There's one other passage I want to look at in the New Testament about the word wind. And if we could have that slide up, please, Beth. This one happens after the resurrection. The disciples were stuck in the upper room. They were frightened for their lives. They didn't know what was going to happen. Jesus had disappeared. Uh, sorry, Jesus had, was, um, had been raised from the dead. They didn't know what was going to happen. And yet he appeared to them in the upper room when they were panicking and just thinking, where do we go next? Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if the significance of that has ever struck you, but it struck me afresh just this last couple of weeks. When Jesus breathed on him, he said, receive the wind. Receive the wind of God. And though they were frightened and terrified, they were there not knowing what what was going to happen. Jesus basically says to them, I'm sending you. Go. Go with the wind. Go with the wind. Go with the wind. And he breathed on them. And this wasn't a gentle wind. Because that word pneuma and the word ruach in Hebrew 
Both represent a powerful, strong wind. Not a gentle breeze, not a little puff. It's the sort of breath that you have to use when you're exercising, an energetic blowing, a blowing up of something, blowing out candles on a birthday cake. There's a sense of power behind the wind of God in the word ruach in Hebrew and pneuma in Greek. And Jesus was saying to his disciples, you need the wind, you need to be born of the wind, you need to be born of the Spirit. And I'm sending you in the power of the Spirit. You need that wind of the Spirit. I just, it would be amazing to have been in that room as Jesus looked at them and they looked at him and he just did this huge breath. <sighs> Receive the Holy Spirit, now go. Go with the wind of the Spirit. You see, where the wind of the Spirit is, hap- is going, something's always happening. By definition, if there is no wind, nothing's going on. There is no wind where it's stationary, a lack of wind, nothing happening. But if the Spirit of God is described as the wind of God, he's always doing something, always working, always active, always engaging, always wanting to push us on and to move us on. Go, go with the wind, Jesus says. So the Bible describes the Holy Spirit as the wind. What else does the Bible use to describe the Holy Spirit, to try and give us a flavor of a sense of who the Holy Spirit is? Well, in John chapter 4, the chapter after the Nicodemus episode, Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman. And partway through the conversation, we've got this section here. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you've nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Does that mention the Holy Spirit? Not at all. But we only have to jump on a couple of chapters to this verse here. Jesus went to Jerusalem and stood at the Feast of Tabernacles and said, On the last and greatest day of the festival, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. That, I believe, is a really significant passage of Scripture. It's on the one hand saying, yes, the water I spoke about to the woman at the Samaritan well, at the Samaritan well, the water that I spoke about there is the Holy Spirit. John is very clear when Jesus said, this water that I'm going to give you, that's going to refresh you, it's going to be living water, He was referring to the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And that would only truly be fulfilled and fully fulfilled once Jesus had died, risen from the dead, and ascended to heaven from where on the day of Pentecost he poured out the promised Holy Spirit, as Peter says in the book of Acts. And at that stage, the Holy Spirit was poured out on all flesh and and Peter quotes the book of Joel about how God was going to pour out his Holy Spirit. So I think it's really important that the Bible talks about the Spirit as the wind. 
And the, and the Bible talks about the Spirit as the water, that refreshing water of life, sustaining, empowering, and the wind that drives us forward. We could look at other ways that the Spirit is described, you know, the fire on Pentecost and so on. Um, but for today, I'm just going to leave it at those two, those two images in your mind of the Spirit being the wind and being water. I'd like to look now at our nature. So not the nature of God or the Holy Spirit, but our nature. First thing is to say we were made in the image of God. If we go back to Genesis, it says really clearly there, God created mankind in his own image, in his own likeness. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. And then in chapter 2, it expands on it a little and says, And the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. It's clear too from other passages of scripture that the Holy Spirit was breathing into people. And this whole emphasis here is that we too are spiritual beings. We are made in the image of God. And if God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and God makes us in his image, there is something of the nature of God in us. So if we just put the next slide up briefly, Beth, I'll skip through this one. And you can come back and look at the references later if you like. But in Ezekiel, that's the section before the Valley of Dry Bones, it talks there about uh, God putting his spirit in us. In Job 33, this is Elihu speaking, one of Job's friends, or so-called friends, um, the Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. And then in Psalm 104, a very powerful psalm, the psalmist says, when you send your Spirit, they are created. And that psalm goes on to talk about not just the Spirit creating, but the Spirit sustaining. And right through the Old Testament, there is a sense of the Spirit being essential to our lives as human beings. In fact, if you go to the New Testament, there are a couple of quotes there which we'll have up on the screen now. May your whole spirit, says Paul, your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a sense in the New Testament there for what Paul is saying, that we are body, soul and spirit. We are spiritual beings. And James, it's an interesting one, this. Uh, it says there is the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. The whole passage in James there is all about faith rather than works. And yet thrown in is this little nugget of truth there, as the body without the spirit is dead. The body without the spirit is dead. We are spiritual beings. And there's a lovely quote here, which uh, again, Beth, perhaps you could put this up for us. I thought this was from Gerald Coates. Uh, I think I heard it from Gerald Coates. And it's one of those sayings or, or quotations that when you hear it, it sticks with you. This has stayed with me for many, many years. It's actually from a, a French... A Jesuit priest who was also a scientist and a philosopher. His name is Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. And it says this, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. That, I think, for me, has been a most significant phrase for me to understand. I am a spiritual being having a temporary human experience. I'm not a human being that has spiritual experiences that from time to time I come to church or this happens or that happens or whatever. I am, in essence, a spiritual being. I'm made in the image of God, who himself is spirit, and he has made me as a spiritual being. And the Holy Spirit continues to work to this day, keeping us alive and sustaining us. The next section I want to look at this morning is the Holy Spirit's role in our conversion 
and their salvation. We've looked at his nature, who he is, some of the ways he's described in Scripture. We've looked at who we are as human beings, how each of us is essentially a spiritual being. But here's the problem. Although we are made in the image of God, as it says in one of the Anglican confessions, we have marred your image in us. Sin came in from the very earliest of days. And since that time, every human being, as you will well know if you know the gospel story, every human being is subject to that sinful nature. That image of God created in us has been marred by sin. It's been spoiled, it's been tainted, it's been corrupted. So though we are made in the image of God, and though we are spiritual beings, sin has got in the way. Now this is the longest quote I've got for us to read this morning, but again, I make no apology for it. I think it is extraordinarily powerful. It's running onto two screens. It's from Romans 8, as Paul talks and explains about life in the Spirit. So it's a long quote, but I think we should read it all. Therefore, he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. You can say hallelujah if you like. (laughs) For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their mindset on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Next page. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, question mark, perhaps. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So I said question mark. If you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ. If Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Are you in any doubt? Can you be in any doubt? If you're a believer, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to deal with that whole marring of your nature, to go to the cross, to take the punishment for your sins, for your rebellion, for your wickedness, can you be in any doubt that if you've done that, then the Spirit of God lives in you? Absolutely not. Can you be a Christian and not have the Spirit of God? No. The moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you repent of your sin, you turn from all of that, and you thank him for dying for you on the cross. At that moment, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you. Yeah, amazing. It is truly amazing. The unmistakable fact of the indispensable Holy Spirit. I'd love to read a little quote here from Jim Packer. Jim Packer, who's written a huge number of books over the years. Um, This one, I can't remember where it comes from. I think it's an online article. Beth, could we have this one up, please? He says this, When we look back on our conversion, 
Both scripture and our own hearts tell us that we turned because we were turned. We came to trust the Lord because we were turned. We came to trust the Lord because God himself drew us to him. In this act of almighty grace, the Holy Spirit is the direct agent. He illuminates, convinces, quickens, induces new birth, imparts repentance, and prompts the converted soul's confession, Jesus is Lord. Yeah. So when you're born again, as it says in John chapter 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, when you're born again, you are made alive in the Spirit. He is indispensable to our salvation. You know, one thing that saddens me a bit as I've reflected on this is that too often at conversion, there is no mention of the Holy Spirit. Too often, I think, in the evangelical church in general, when we present the gospel to people and we ask them to say the sinner's prayer or they choose to say the sinner's prayer, it will very often be along the lines of, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins, I repent, I know I've done wrong. Jesus, I thank you that you died for me on the cross and that my sins are forgiven. I thank you that I'm going to heaven. But very often that's where it stops. And very often there is no mention of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit coming, as it said in that Romans 8 chapter there, to bring us the new life that we need. So often no mention of the Holy Spirit at conversion. I think we need to address that. I don't just mean at our church. I think the church needs to address that. Because if you read the New Testament, you read Acts of the Apostles in particular, it's very rare that you had a situation where there was not a tangible experience of the Holy Spirit when people put their faith in Jesus. When people came to faith, the Holy Spirit was very evident. Now, there are three, section, three chapters or three references which are slightly problematic, and they can all be discussed. There's Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19. And one of them is the, uh, when the gospel goes to Samaria. One is Cornelius and Peter visiting, and the other one is the Ephesian believers. Um, they're potentially problematic, but they are absolutely explainable in terms of what was going on and why it happened. But the overwhelming sense that I have from reading Scripture is that at the point of conversion, there was an experience of the Holy Spirit. As somebody put their life in Jesus, the Holy Spirit came because we know he does, and it says it, there is no doubt, but the experience, the manifestation of that should be happening at that moment. However, at this point, as I come slowly towards an end, it's not quite there yet, <laughs> but slowly towards an end, I'm beginning to think about putting the wheels down for landing, as Dara would say, uh, but only beginning to think about it, and I may need to think about it a few times. Um, I thought it might be worth giving you a little bit of a personal illustration because every one of us has a different story. You know, not everything happens the way it should happen or we think it should happen. Every one of us is on a different story. I became a Christian at the age of 12. I'd been in a church-going family. My mum and my, uh, my two sisters went to church as youngsters. And um, I went to an outdoor adventure centre in my first year, the end of my first year at secondary school, and at the age of 12, at that Christian outdoor adventure center, I gave my life to Jesus. I understood the gospel. It was clearly presented, and I made that decision to become a Christian. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit came into my life. But I'll be honest, I don't know that there was any sense of an experience of the Holy Spirit that I could put my finger on at that age. And I went through my teenage years going to various churches. I used to sing in church choirs. Some of them were in quite high churches. But there was no sense of fellowship or being part of a, what we'd call a charismatic or Pentecostal church. In my late teens, I went to a very well-known and extremely good Anglican church, one of the biggest churches in the country, in London. 
But even then, there was a background of, even though it was evangelical, not what you'd call charismatic or Pentecostal. And so my experience was of a tension of thinking, I've read the scriptures, I know there should be more than this. You know, we sing that song, don't we? There must be more than this. There must be more than this. I went to university, and I was exposed to different churches and different groups of believers, and seeing things and hearing things and having discussions, and realizing there was more than I had thus far experienced of the Holy Spirit. And yet it was only at the age of 21 when I'd had people pray for me many times to be filled with the Spirit, and all of that means, or baptized in the Spirit, and that's, again, for another time, that's not for today. But nothing would happen necessarily. I wouldn't say that I had any real personal sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit powerfully in my life. I'm not saying he didn't guide me and lead me. Of course he did. He was there. He is there. He was leading me and guiding me. But that fullness of the Spirit was something that I don't believe I experienced. And yet it was one evening. It was a Sunday evening after a church service in in East London where Rachel and I were were living. Actually, it's before we were married, wasn't it? Um, People had prayed for me, and I remember getting into my car slightly frustrated that people had prayed again, and I didn't sense anything very different happening. But as I got in the car and drove home, I don't know why, but I just began to worship. And it wasn't a very long journey home. As I began to worship, the Holy Spirit came on me in a new and powerful way, in a way that I hadn't experienced before. And it was at a time I wasn't experiencing, expecting it. Why do I say all of that? Well, I say it for two reasons. Firstly, I want you to know this morning that if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit lives within you. There is no doubt. But number two, God wants to take you on a journey in the Spirit. So wherever you're at, whatever your misgivings, unhappiness, disappointments, excitements are about what God has done or would appear not to have done, In your Christian walk to this day, God wants to take you on a journey of discovery with the Holy Spirit, that you'd be full of him. He wants us to walk and keep in step with him, to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Each one of us is on a journey. Can we have the next slide, please, Beth, from Jim Packer? Jim says this, Conversion thus appears as the most significant thing that ever happens to any human being. It makes God our focus, Christ our glory, the Spirit our life, and heaven our home forever. And it's the Holy Spirit himself who affects this union, who sustains it by his indwelling presence, who makes it fruitful in Christ-like living, and who will one day finish his transformation by giving us new bodies to match our renewed hearts. We need to make it our daily goal to live out with the Spirit's help what has been wrought in us by the Spirit's power. True conversion is known by the new quality of life that it produces. The Spirit, the wind of God, is God's power at work, blowing through human lives. So that creator spirit in Genesis 1, that wind of God, who comes to us at our conversion, wants to continue to blow through our human lives. There's so much we need the Holy Spirit for that's going to come up in in future weeks. Daryl mentioned last week, about the paraclete. I'm going to leave some of my notes, Beth, just so you know. The Holy Spirit who comes alongside us to help us, to be our counselor, to be our support. That sounds almost irreverent to say that, but to some extent that's what the word means. To be our advocate. The Holy Spirit wants to live in us and move in us and help us and sustain us and work through us. 
Emma, I wonder if you could come back to, to the keyboard for us, please. And as we draw to a close, I want to ask you, in fact, could I ask you to stand, please, as, as Emma comes back? I'd just like to ask you, where are you at with the Holy Spirit? Because Jesus said, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And he then says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So I just want to say this morning, just ask him. Ask God for what you need from him. He will give you the Holy Spirit. If you are listening to this, whether in the building or outside, you've never ever given your life to Jesus, you can do that. And say, Lord Jesus, I thank you. You died on the cross for my sins. I thank you. You took the punishment for all the stuff I know I do wrong. And I want you to come and live in me and change me and make me a new person. The Holy Spirit will come. If you ask for the Holy Spirit, he will come. I just wonder if anyone this morning needs just to have a sense of the wind of God needing to be refreshed in them. Maybe you feel that you've not been moving in the Spirit as you feel you would want to. Or you just have a sense that you need that wind of God to galvanize you, to push you forward. As Jesus said to his disciples, you know, now go, go with the wind, go with the wind. If there's a sense of that in this morning, ask God to give you a renewed sense of that wind of God. Do you need that refreshing water that Jesus talked about that will never, ever run dry? The last thing I'm going to say this morning is I was in the shower the other, the other morning and it came to mind from Revelation 3.20, you'll know the picture that Holman Hunt painted of Jesus, the light of the world. And it's to do with Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he will eat with me. And we know that so well. And yet I just had a sense when I was reflecting on that, that God was saying, well, yep, you did that. You did that. And I came in, because I said I would and I have. But where is the Holy Spirit in your life? In that image of coming into your home, as it were, has the Holy Spirit been left in one room? that you don't visit very much? Or does the Holy Spirit have free reign to move wherever he wants to in your life? So you may have invited Jesus into your life, but let's ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill our lives. So whatever it is you need for this morning, I haven't got anything specifically I'm going to pray. I'm just going to ask him to play quietly. If Daryl wants to come and finish off the meeting, that's, that's great. If you've got anything to add, Daryl. But I just want us to, to wait in the presence of God and for you in your own words to say what you need from the Holy Spirit. Do you need that wind of God? Do you need that water of life that's going to bring refreshment? Do you want to say, Lord, thus far, but I want to go further in you. My story is not yet complete. I want to know more of your spirit. So, just in this waiting period, I'm going to stop talking now. Just say to the Lord whatever you would say to him.
Holy Spirit, wind of God, I pray over our church here. I pray for every person listening to this now, that your wind would blow afresh through us, that your wind would blow through me, because Lord, I need this as much as anybody else needs. Holy Spirit, come blow afresh through us. I pray that as you blow, you will blow things away that need to be blown away. Stuff that's in neat piles that need to be blown into a bit of a mess. Things that need to be blown out of our lives. Lord, would you blow on us and inspire us to go and to run with the message of the gospel as you said go. And Holy Spirit, I pray you come and bring each of us that living water day in, day out, that sustaining sense of your presence. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So as Daryl comes up, I just want to say go and continue your journey with God. Keep open to what the Spirit would say to you. Your journey is different from everybody else's journey. But go and seek God for the more of the Holy Spirit as we continue to look in this series at the indispensable Holy Spirit.